Welcome aboard to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, uh, ranting at you on um, the 25th of May. And actually, this is going to be more of an interview than a rant, or if anybody's going to be doing the ranting, it's going to be Tom Moore. Thomas Moore joining us uh, by the miracle of Zoom from his library in Lima, Peru. Welcome aboard, Tom. Thank you. It's a good. It's great to be with you and, and your audience. Thank you. And uh, you're a uh, an anthropologist and a longtime advocate for um, indigenous cultural survival, and most That's recently correct. the uh, co-editor and contributor to a very hefty volume which has just been released entitled "Madre de Dios: Refugio de Pueblos Originarios." or uh, Madre de Dios, Refuge of Original Peoples, published by USAID earlier this year. And uh, probably a lot, of, uh, a lot of our listeners have never heard of Madre de Dios, but it's uh, uh, an area of the world that you've been uh, deeply involved in for many years. That's correct. It's a very special part of the world with one of the highest biodiversity rates and intact forest rates. Uh, anywhere in the Amazon Basin or in Peru in particular, and also a great deal of in diversity of indigenous peoples uh, who are um, uh, still living there and uh, organized and trying to defend themselves against the, all of the external threats that are threatening them or are coming against them for their land and natural resources. Yes, uh, Madre de Dios occasionally has made some international headlines concerning the so-called, to use the misnomer, uncontacted peoples, more uh, accurately referred to as peoples in voluntary isolation. That's correct. Who, uh, industrial civilization seems to be encroaching upon despite the best of their efforts to stay away from it. That's true. And the th those threats are coming from loggers, oil companies, um, gold miners, uh, f uh, 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 hunters, um, as well as now drug traffickers. And so uh, it's a serious problem and the government is not responding adequately to it. They have created a, an indigenous reserve or a territorial reserve, which is supposed to be expanded, but hasn't been yet. And so that's part of the struggle. All right. There's actually a lot of um, ostensibly protected territory in Madre de Dios. But I yes. guess the emphasis is on the ostensibly because it isn't really always uh, protected. That is correct. There are three natural protected areas, actually three national parks, uh, a an indigenous communal reserve, uh, which is part of their traditional territory, but it's actually under the control of the of the park service, not the indigenous people themselves. And there is this territorial reserve for the isolated indigenous people. But there is also major illegal placer gold mining, uh, lots of timber concessions, uh, and uh, uh, other pressures from the outside world, and now increasingly drug traffickers. Mm -hmm. Well, when I was down there, I was in Madre de Dios 11 years ago now, uh, oh, if you wow. recall. I actually stayed with you on that trip when I was in Lima. Okay. And uh, at that time, I was writing about a threat to the, uh, the indigenous reserve, the Amara Cayeri Communal Reserve, 
uh, which, as you say, is, you know, it's for the indigenous peoples, but it's not actually uh, entirely titled to them. It's actually under the control of the Peruvian central government, which at that time was uh, hoping to open it up to um, natural gas exploitation by Hunt Oil of Texas. That I believe that correct. was largely beaten back, wasn't it? Well, Hunt Oil eventually withdrew because they were unable to complete their drilling uh, obligations within the time frame. And so they, they gave and also their prospects of, of, of commercial um, natural gas, which was the thing they were really looking for, uh, seemed dimmer than they had originally anticipated. So that was a relief for the indigenous peoples because Hunt Oil had been trying to divide the indigenous peoples and bring them on board by little goodies to some of the leaders in, in efforts to split the organizational opposition to their activities. Mm -hmm. Which principally would be Fenamod, right? Fenamod is the in indigenous organization which I helped uh, establish nearly 40 years ago and have been working with in an advisory capacity ever since. They're now probably the strongest indigenous organization in Peru and maybe even in the entire Amazon basin. They're intact in the whole area of, of the Madre Dios uh, department and two adjacent communities in Cusco. Uh, most of the other indigenous organizations have splintered into smaller local groups uh, although they're articulated with national organizations like IDASIP and uh, regionally in the Amazon region in Coica, the coordinator of uh, indigenous organizations of the Amazon basin. Right. So you've got different um, levels of uh, like geographical levels of organization here. Fenamad is the uh, native federation of the Madre de Dios River. And the watershed, uh, yes. Turn is a... Um, a member of IDASEP, which is the national um, uh, affiliate organization for the indigenous peoples of the Peruvian Amazon throughout the country, throughout the Amazonian region of the country. Yes, and Fenamai itself uh, hosts two intermediate organizations, which are Coaryima, the, the um, Council of Arakbutin and Matsigenga peoples, and uh, in the western part of the uh, territory. And the Coimba Mad, which is the indigenous peoples of the lower part of the of the basin, uh, that helps them uh, coordinate better with the communities more directly. I mean, call me back in two hours, okay? And uh, it also um, assuages interethnic tensions within the organization. And uh, they've also established some technical instances. One is the uh agency the entity which uh, has holds the contract with the uh park service to administer the communal reserve another is a forestry initiative which is trying to uh, promote um uh, sound and sustainable extraction of mostly non-timber forest products uh, like brazil nuts and a few other things um and uh, there's a youth group it's also affiliated with Fenamad. So it's a complex network of organizations. Mm -hmm. And then uh, on the national level, IDASEP is uh, uniting the various regional um, organizations yes. of the Peruvian Amazon. And IDASEP in, term, in turn is a part of COICA, 
which is the uh, organization for the entire Amazon basin with uh, right. representative uh, branches in uh, Brazil, Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, et cetera. Venezuela, nine Amazon countries, including Guyana, Suriname, and French Guiana, which is not a country, but a part of France. Right. Or an overseas yeah. <clears throat> uh, part of France, yeah. And, uh, and they are also, uh, are, um, their member, Fenamad directly is a member of the IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Uh, they oh, yeah? have frequently attended the, uh, the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Uh, and they're members of the ICCA consortium, which uh, defends the territories and brings awareness to the territories that are conserved by local indigenous and other local communities around the world. And they're a part of the Minamata Convention on, uh, on Mercury in uh, contamination of the natural environment. Ah, yes, which is a big issue due to all of the uh, completely reckless mining activities which are taking place in, uh, in Madre de Dios. That's correct. Not only reckless, but also illegal. But um, the government is very patient. Well, you know, there have also been some efforts to crack down, which have been extremely militarized. And you've actually had like armed clashes between uh, illegal miners and government troops uh, over sporadically that, that over the course true. of and, years. And all that that has accomplished was momentary dispersal of the illegal miners, which are pretty much dominated by uh, organized international organized crime and drug trafficking people. Right. Um, so they have they have been dispersed to other parts, and they're a threat now to other areas of the same region in Madre de Dios. Although this year, in the context of the upcoming elections, uh, the military have not been authorized to make to interdict anybody for the moment, and so the gold miners are coming back, uh, uh, and uh, so are uh, people plan planting coca leaf uh, uh, under the gaze of the military, who can't who are not allowed to do anything about it. Uh huh. They're being constrained because of the uh, the pending elections. The government doesn't want to make any waves before the elections. That's ah, yes. Well, I definitely want to talk to you about the elections because it definitely looks like, uh, uh, by my reading of the situation, Peru is really po poised to polarize very dramatically. I can't imagine how it's going to avoid it, given the uh, the, the two candidates from opposite ends of the political spectrum. Who are going to be facing they're, each other in the from opposite just, uh, ends of the political perspective as the press presents them, but I don't see. Uh, well, obviously, I have a preference for one of the one of the candidates over the other. I should hope so. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, the the choice is between Keiko Fujimori, who's the daughter of the former authoritarian president. Uh, and, and violator of human rights now in prison, Alberto Fujimori, and, uh, and is close, has close ties with organized crime uh, and, and lots of other uh, fairly nasty people uh, and, and much corruption. And the other candidate is Pedro Castillo, who is a professor who's presented by the press as a 
as a leftist and a Marxist and a communist and a terrorist and all sorts of things, uh, which is pretty hard for them to, uh, a, a pretty hard case for them to make because Pedro Castillo was a member of the Ronderos who were defending their communities against Sendero Luminoso in the 1980s and early 90s. And he's a professor. Uh, when you say he's a professor, he was actually, he was a school teacher, no? Yeah, he was, sorry, he was a school teacher. Yeah, in, in a rural community here, but, in Cajamarca, right. up in the north of the country. Yes, yeah. in Cajamarca. And, uh, and he was, and, and, and still is, um, a representative of his community and a, and a leader of the teachers' union, school teachers' union, which is SUTEP. Now, SUTEP professes a Marxist-Leninist ideology, and he sort of uh, repeats that. But my read is he has very little understanding of Marxist-Leninist ideology or what it means, and the opposition, and particularly the Lima Press, is trying to attack him accuse him of reproducing Venezuela. He has no contacts at all with Venezuela. And uh, and even if he did, it would be irrelevant to the situation in Peru. Well, worse yet, they're trying to tar him with associations with Sendero Luminoso, which can seem to be completely baseless. Except that that has been uh, discredited because of his role as, as a rondero defending right. his community against yeah. Sendero Luminoso. Right. The ronderos, the, the rondas were like the, the peasant self-defense patrols, which That's emerged, right. I guess, in the 1980s to defend the, communities. Beginning in the 1970s, but yes. Yeah. In, 1980, mm -hmm. they were, in 1980s, they were strongest. And then they were originally organized to defend uh, local um peasants against the, the, the cattle rustlers and other raiders of their property. Right. Uh, and, uh, and then when Sendero Luminoso came in, they were used to protect the communities against the, the abuses of Sendero Luminoso and, and the violence that it brought with them. So uh, it's pretty hard to claim that, that uh, uh, Castillo has any ties with Sendero. Because he was a, 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 a direct opponent of them in that conflict uh, yes. during mm -hmm. those years, and uh, he's a part, a member of a party called Peru Libre, which is headed by a, a former governor of Huanuco. I'm sorry, of Junin uh, State or, or department region. Actually, region, is the correct region word, now right? in Madre Dios. Yeah. Now in Peru, that's correct. Uh, except, and, and Ceron has been convicted, uh, fairly or not, I'm not certain, of some corrupt acts and sentence, so he can't be a candidate. Uh, and, and so they're attacking him for that. But corruption is, is more of an issue with Keiko Fujimori because she's already been accused, but not tr yet tried, for a whole range of corrupt issues, including money laundering and and illegal campaign uh, contribution. Right. Session. She was in prison herself, what, like a year ago? On For what's called preventive, preventive prison detention? on several different occasions. Yeah. But, but the case has not yet been tried. So she she's presumed innocent until, until convicted. Uh, but anyway, there's the, the evidence is abundant. And once the elections are over, if she loses, 
they will probably try her and, and hopefully bring her to justice uh, with, a, with an extensive prison sentence. All right. And she is actually trailing in the polls, I guess. Uh, except that the polls are not very reliable. Right. Yes. Uh, one, one bias is that they tend to be Lima-centric. Yeah. And, and Lima is her strength. Uh, and the provinces are not. Right. So th that, uh, that would mean that she maybe is trailing even further than what the polls indicate. Theoretically, although yeah. um, my concern is that uh, I may be incorrect in this, but at least I'm concerned that the polls uh, uh, understate her strength around the country, in, in both in Lima and in the provinces, because a lot of people who answer the polls uh, don't admit that they plan to vote for Keiko. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly, the, and she has a lot of support from more legitimate right-wing parties who are, who are afraid of or don't want to align with uh, Pedro Castillo and the, the presumed left. Although I find Pedro Castillo terribly conservative, frankly, that's my criticism of him. All right, well, well do tell. I mean, it seems to me that, uh, you know, he's kind of culturally conservative. He's not, he's not good on abortion, for instance, He's and opposed to abortion and, and issues he, like that. But uh, on the more, you know, uh, general questions of, uh, you know, economic and social justice, he seems to be uh, pretty much on the left. Now, I don't he, forgive, you know, those uh, those limitations, shall we say, on uh, so-called, you know, social questions, as they call them here in the United States. You know, I mean, he has to be opposed on his opposition to abortion and gay marriage. Absolutely. Not just gay marriage, he's opposed to LGBT rights categorically no, that's and women's rights. Yeah, really. Yeah. And he's also in favor of reintroducing the death penalty in Peru. Ugh. A lot of these are pretty horrible things. They are. Uh, one would hope that they he doesn't have, I mean, if he's elected, he'll be faced with a basically hostile Congress. And uh, one would hope that there will be enough political pressure so that those kinds of changes can't go through. Uh, but but we'll see. Right. Well, to me, the, uh, the the really interesting question is going to be, uh, I mean, at least he's talking a good line now about um, indigenous and campesino rights and, you know, protecting their lands and their territories and standing up to the to the uh, resource exploitation interests. Uh, but yeah. of course, once he's actually in power, if in fact he's ever in power, uh, you know, uh, he's going to have to play ball to a certain extent. I mean, it's going to be the same dilemma that that Evo Morales faced in um, in Bolivia and Rafael Correa faced in Ecuador. That's true. Uh, although I don't see him in any way similar to those two uh, presidents. Uh, I think there's there are a lot of differences. He is of direct peasant extraction. And uh, and to, to me, that's to his credit. He is a teacher. And, uh, and he, he represents provincial values and understands that the provinces are being marginalized while the elite in Lima are in control of things in the country. And he wants to reverse that, that relationship, or at least uh, make it more equal. Uh, uh, and in my interpretation, his talk about indigenous people's rights, well, uh, campesino rights has long been one of his uh, uh, one of the um, positions that he's advocated. But uh, indigenous rights in, in the Amazon Basin, for example, 
uh, he hadn't spoken of much before. And I believe that is coming from the technical advisors that have been provided him by Veronica Mendoza, who was another left candidate that uh, uh, came in, I believe, in fifth place. So Veronica has thrown her support behind Castillo, I assume. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and most of the left has so far. Mm -hmm. uh, but most of the right is pretty well aligned with Keiko. Even those people who have attacked her viv vigorously as corrupt and uh, her human rights abuses and all those things in the past, now they're supporting her. Mm -hmm. Well, that's ominous. It is. And the, I mean, we all agree it would be an absolute disaster if she got in. It, it will, uh, the country will be captured by organized crime if she gets in. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the serious part of it. Or further uh, and, captured by organized crime, we might say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, organized crime has a lot of clout right now, but they they um, there there's enough. Um, they aren't checked, but uh, there there's a there's interest in, made, in many sectors of the population and uh, political leaders to control it, uh, although they haven't gotten very far yet. All right. So when we talk about organized crime in Peru, we're talking about kind of an, an overlapping nexus, which controls the narco trade, illegal mining, illegal logging. All of that illegal wildlife trafficking, uh, land trafficking, a uh, whole range of things. Yes. Mm -hmm. And very often, uh, you know, these uh, <clears throat> ostensibly illegal networks kind of serve as the advance guard for, uh, you know, uh, legitimate above board corporate exploitation. Like a that is order, correct. You know, the, the roads are punched into the jungle illegally, uh, but then you know the uh, the big mining interest and oil interest and timber interests, which are you know actually controlled by international capital, you know follow those those roads and those uh, outlaw pioneers into the rainforest. Well, some of it now is is national capital, but even so, they have allies in international in glo in global circles. Uh, but yes. Um, uh, that is true, uh, but not only that, um, the, uh, the, the, the illegal crime has major inroads in government circles because of bribes and, uh, that they pay, and because they may, they're major contributors to the campaigns of a lot of people who are elected to the Congress and other major positions, for example, governors of states and so forth. Yeah. <clears throat> governors of uh, regions, regions. Yeah. yeah formerly departments now regions right Re correct except yeah. that yeah. the regions are supposed to be multiple departments and that hasn't happened yet well those are the uh, macro regions right except that the, the the term region is used loosely now to to cover them but it shouldn't be because the regions are defined as macro regions uh, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Madre de Marca and so on are, are regions, formerly departments. Correct. And, and they're supposed to conglomerate with neighboring regions to form macro regions. I mean, this is all like real uh, geekish stuff for most of our listeners, probably. But the whole question well, about well, Peru except organizing that the regions itself, are not supposed to exist separately uh, under the law. In fact, they do because they haven't reached an agreement to associate with others yet. Hmm. And probably won't for a while because there are lots of tensions. All right. Well, this has all kind of been a vexing question for Peru for a long time. The whole question of internal 
uh, administrative organization because and traditionally power has been very centralized around Lima. And, and still uh, is. Still is, yes. Decentralization is a major and urgent need, although a lot of people in Lima are, are uh, accusing the subnational government people of corruption, which is largely true, except that um, the corruption needs to be controlled. These uh, instances need to be more transparent. But that's not a, a, an, an excuse for avoiding decentralization, which is what the elites are doing. Yes, yes. <clears throat> and uh, this uh, Amazonian region of the country in particular was really kind of uh, almost completely excluded from, the, uh, from, from any share of political power until uh, Fenimad and Adesep and so on began to organize, I guess, going back to what, late 70s, early 80s? Correct. Yeah. And then... Uh, what I went down there to cover 11 years ago was the, the big uh, uprising that year in response to um, Peru uh, getting into the free trade agreement with the United States. And there was an uprising of indigenous peoples throughout the Amazonian region of Peru, which I think really took a lot of people by surprise in the uh, political establishment in Lima. Yes, uh, although that, that has been misrepresented in a lot of ways. Uh, the indigenous people were opposing principally the position of, of the government of Alan Garcia that would uh, privatize their lands and yes. eliminate their communal land titles. Uh, and, and so um, they, they were reje rejecting that. Now, the press uh, argued that the, um, the uh, free trade agreement with the United States uh, would... Uh, would further harm indigenous rights by eliminating their their um, uh, forest, their access to forests, and so forth. In fact, the the free uh, I mean, I was totally opposed to the free trade agreement between the United States and Peru because of the impact of the commercial arrangements. But on the forestry issue, there is a clause that uh, strengthens the position of indigenous peoples uh, by uh, uh, prohibiting uh, forestry extraction in their lands and in areas where uh, where it would harm the environment, and require the government to adapt new uh, elements of forestry legislation, which have never been completely done, although they're promising to do it. But even so, uh, the agreement itself was not harmful to the forest, but by uh, by uh, strengthening trade of, of things, commercial trade, but not services uh, and people's salaries and so forth uh, and income possibilities, they're, they're harming uh, the poorer people in, in countries like Peru. So that's the criticism I have of the free trade agreement, but not on the forestry issues because it, it actually took a fairly progressive position on that. Well, yes, but it, it, Gar uh, Alan Garcia, pr president at the time, uh, immediately uh, prior to the agreement taking effect, pushed through by, by decree, by, by, by presidential fiat, these measures which would have uh, allowed ind titled indigenous territories in the Amazon to be massively privatized. And it was perceived that this was um, in anticipation of the free trade agreement and all of the uh, 
you know, uh, investment from uh, foreign oil companies and so on that would be pouring in and opening up those uh, opening up those territories to to corporate power. Well, that that was certainly that in was the at plan least that was at least very much Alan the perception. Garcia. And no, but but a lot of the a lot of things were misrepresented in that discussion. Uh, but anyway, um, the free trade agreement was not a good thing. It's it's harmful to everybody, not just indigenous people, uh, and it doesn't conserve forests as it purported to do. So, uh, uh, as usual, free trade agreements are usually don't favor people; they favor capital. Yes, of course, indeed. So, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, I mean, uh, NAFTA has just uh, been renegotiated. So um, I don't know what uh, the prospects are for any kind of renegotiation with Peru, but I don't uh, think they're very great at this point. No, <clears throat> it's not on the table, at least yet. But, uh, you know, perhaps we should talk a bit more about the um, about the role of these, you know, remote in, uh, rainforest regions like Madre de Dios in the uh, the general political dilemma in the country, because uh, there was that moment with the uprising in 2010, where uh, it really seemed like, uh, which unfortunately was punctuated by uh, the, a massacre, the Bagua massacre, up at the other end of the Amazon in the north and Amazonas region. Uh, and, uh, for, and finally those decrees which, which Garcia had issued, which would have called for the um, privatization of titled indigenous territories were revoked on account of public outrage over the over the repression. Uh, and Some of them sense. were revoked, but not all. And the ones that were yes. left in place are definitely harmful. Yes, indeed. Uh, right. Partially revoked, I should say. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> but there was a sense that finally, uh, you know, the country was, uh, and, and the political consciousness in the country was, was grappling with this huge area of the country, which constitutes, uh, what, the Amazonian region of Peru constitutes maybe a third or of more the of the national territory. 60%, yes. 60% of the national territory. <laughs> that, of course, includes the relatively high uh, altitude areas of the drainage. But even so, mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's a major portion of the country and it doesn't have the resources allowed uh, or the public resources available to it that the cities have. And so it's... Um, to say the least. To say the least, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's mm -hmm. at a strong disadvantage politically. And because of the population, uh, the cities and the, the coastal areas and the highlands have more representation in, in the Congress. <coughs> and now the new Congress is going to be dominated by the right-wing parties, although Pedro Castillo's party has the largest number of members of Congress, they don't have enough other allies, and it's so dispersed that they're... Uh, no one's going to have an absolute majority, but the alignment of the right-wing parties could very well and likely will have a majority in the new Congress. So that's ah, a, so even that's if we do problem. get a president Pedro Castillo, this is uh, the juxtaposition of forces he's going to be looking at, which is not very favorable for his agenda. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And uh, the press uh, will try to bring him down like they did Salvador Allende, and, uh, and so on. Hopefully not by such bloody means. Well, but, uh, yeah. so is there, I mean, 10 years after the, the Amazon uprising, is there a, uh, 
uh, do you have a certain sense that, uh, you know, the, the country has kind of gone back to sleep on the whole question of the Amazon and and how it's been, you know, kind of left behind by uh, the entire political process? It's been left behind by the political process, except where there's corruption and uh, organized crime, which has increased its presence and strength and political clout in in the in the country and particularly in the Amazon regions. All right. So, what is the uh, <clears throat> the status of the uh, reserve for peoples in isolation, which has been established in Madre de Dios? It's still pending uh, definition of its final form and uh, boundaries uh, because there are forestry concessions for timber that the government doesn't want to or, or probably even can't uh, practically, in practical terms, uh, uh, extinguish. Uh, because uh, uh, with the Fujimori constitution that may, tries to privatize everything, even the forestry concessions have property-like characteristics. You can buy, sell, um, mortgage, uh, inherit, and so forth. Forestry concessions and mining concessions, just like property. Mm -hmm. So, so um, that that creates a situation whereby they're difficult to uh, eliminate by administrative means, and so you'd have to go to court and, and sue the people and get a judge to extinguish them, which is an expensive and, and, and tedious operation. So one of the problems... And some of these concessions actually extend into the territory, which is ostensibly within the reserve? For they don't extend peoples? into it, they abut it. Abut it. And the, and the boundaries which are proposed and were approved, but not definitively because they They've never gotten a final vote on it in the Council of Ministers <laughs> because energy and mines and economy and finance are constantly rejecting it. Uh, but uh, the boundaries should move east substantially in order to cover the areas where the isolated Indians are appearing. Uh, but uh, the timber industry has enough clout that they've blocked that so far. Huh. And I don't see much chance of it getting approved in the near future. Hopefully, with a new government, some new changes can be brought about that will allow for that. And I'd like to see a new forestry law. Uh, the the forest, existing forestry laws, and in, in the previous one as well, were designed to favor uh, export of large, by large timber, large um, forestry corporations. And not uh, and mar have marginalized the small pr producers, the people who live in their chakras and and. Uh, All right, and, you should you should tell us what a chakra is. A chakra is a small farm, uh, yeah. cultivated an area of cultivated crops, um, but um, a lot of these local Amazon residents, uh, mostly non mestizo, uh, tend to uh, produce a little. Uh, some agricultural prop crops for the market. They also uh, take down a few trees for the wood. Uh, they may harvest Brazil nuts and do a few, a whole diverse range of activities through the year at different times of year in order to survive and, and uh, earn a living. And uh, now the forestry laws are favoring the big corporations 
and marginalizing these small producers. So whatever they can produce pretty much goes into the illegal market, mostly the domestic market. Mm-hmm. And on disadvantageous just terms for the producers, right? So those are parts of the, some of the problems that are, we're being confronted with. Okay, and these uh, these forestry laws date to when? The well, the the best forestry law was the one in 1975 done in the Velasco government, and the author was Mark Dorojani, who's a prominent. Uh, uh, forester and biodiversity defendant and so forth, conservationist. Um, but then that was changed in 2000 by the law which created uh, permanent for- production forest over a lot of the primary forest in the Amazon basin. And uh, I'm sorry, what's that term again? Permanent production forest. Uh-huh. That's where the concessions could be granted, mm-hmm. which covered... Uh, major chunks of the Amazon Basin Territory mm-hmm. uh, outside of national parks. and All right, so this was the, the, the first neoliberal reform, so to speak, of the yes. Alaska era. Yes, the second one was even worse because it's more technical, uh, more difficult to comply with, with that over was when, a thousand articles between the law and its four regulations. That's the, that, the, the, that was approved initially in 2011 and went into effect in 2015 with the ah. four mm-hmm. regulations. Mm-hmm. So that's the current law. Mm-hmm. And it's totally uh, pro-export large corporations and marginalizing the small-scale producers. And All right, so the, the, the reform of the forestry law, which was passed after the 2010 uprising, was actually a retrogression? Uh, yes, even worse than the two. Well, both were pretty bad. Maybe the 2001 was worse, but they're 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 comparable. And the difficulty of the current one is that it's more tedious and more complex to deal with. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and so that favors uh, companies that can afford a battery of lawyers and, and accountants and so forth to comply with the law or to present paperwork that appears to comply with the law. Let's put it that way. Well, I'm a little bit surprised they were able to get away with that in the immediate aftermath of the uprising when uh, those legislative decrees uh, for the calling for privatization of indigenous territories, or at least the worst of them, were, uh, were repealed. And this was kind of like the high noon of uh, you know, public concern and awareness of the Amazonian peoples in Peru. Except that um, the new law went into effect in 2015 and it was delayed probably for that reason. Ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, and it sort of, uh, you know, it's it was created under pressure from Odex, the Export Association, and the big timber companies, and they had a consulting process, which was pretty much uh, prepared in advance. So uh, not very many local people got involved in the in the so-called consultations Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're required by law to do that it's just that the way it's done is consultation with the impacted communities theoretically except that the the impacted communities always get left out while the big guys are there as is ostensibly required under international conventions that's right international labor organization convention 169 i believe Yes, yeah. uh, and Peru ratified that, but they they get away with not complying with it because this 
theoretically, Peru is supposed to introduce its own national leg legislation to implement the, the convention. And although most lawyers, or, or at least the most conscientious lawyers, claim that the convention itself is law without having to introduce national legislation, they all recognize that there should be national legislation that implements the convention. But the lawyers for the other side argue that since it's not national law, it doesn't apply, which is nonsense. Or they call uh, it uh, really? So they, st they still have not passed a national law on no, uh, a consultation not. with impacted communities. And that's an obligation that the government has, that they've not met. An obligation under ILO 169. Correct. Uh-huh. But, so, but uh, then under what... Um, under what rubric or auspices have these consultations actually been taking place? These inadequate con consultations. Well, there is a, a, a prior consultation law in place, but the rest of it uh, is not in place. And the guarantees of territories and so forth are not put into place. All right. So when you say the rest of it, what, what, what's the rest of it? What's, what's oh, actually the, not the, covered in the law? The convention is a fairly extensive and, and complex document. It has a lot in it, much more than, than prior consultation. Uh, it establishes the right of indigenous people to their traditional territories uh, and self-determination and uh, in addition to prior consultation right. on anything the government wants to do and that affects them. Uh, the government approved a very limited prior consultation law that uh, is some help, but not enough. And as I say, the rest of it, which means the guaranteeing of territories and so forth, has not been implemented. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, when you say the, the the it and the convention, you mean ILO 169. One ILO 169. That's correct. Yeah. Or oh. the the uh, United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Rights. Right. UNDRIP. United, yes. United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Yes. Correct. To which Peru was also a signatory. It, it is, except not, it's not binding. It's, a, it's an orientation right, binding right. document. Because hundreds of people, hundreds of countries have signed on to that, but may, most of them don't comply with it. Precisely right, because it's not binding. The United States binding. is one of the last, right? Or is the United That's States right. still not joined? I, the United States has not signed off on right. the Indigenous Rights yeah. Declaration. Canada and Australia were two of the last to finally come around. Nor has the United States signed off on ILO 169. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe Germany just did this year. One of the European countries, I think it was Germany. So um, has Pedro Castillo had much to say about, um, about the Amazon and the Amazonian peoples? Only sort of... Um, mechanical uh, he's going to support indigenous people's rights uh but that's better than what keiko is saying yes of course i shudder to think what keiko was saying well she avoids the issue right yeah. i would imagine but there i mean there's been all this uh, denial <clears throat> from uh the political class in peru shall we say and particularly from the from the right that uh, you know isolated peoples even exist they, well, there's no question that they exist because even the government recognizes their existence, except they don't provide the protective measures that are needed to protect. Well, haven't a lot of politicians made noises to the effect that they don't exist? They used to. I don't think they're doing it any longer. Oh, good. Glad pretty, to hear that. That's pretty evident right. because uh, uh, they've been filmed and a lot of videos have been shown of them, and and there have been some attacks on people with 
with uh, with deaths and so forth. So it's pretty hard to claim they don't exist mm-hmm. nowadays. Is, particularly the uh, the Moshko Piru people. They're yes, and the Dominican priest used to say that they didn't exist, but now they have to be backed off from that. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the most critical uh, such group in Madre de Dios is believed to be a a band of the of the Moshko Piru people. Correct. Correct, except that's an offensive term, but we Is don't it? know what their self-determined denomination might be. Uh-huh. Because they're isolated. No? But yeah, they they've been there have been several contacts with uh, neighboring indigenous people, and they've actually they actually killed a young uh, university student in one of the communities about 2015. But they haven't been appearing very much this year or last year. And I don't know whether the uh, pandemic has been a factor there or other things. Oh, one hopes not. Yeah. Uh, but, but they still exist. I mean, they're reported from overflights and, and so forth. I mean, there's evidence that they're still around, except they're not coming out the way they did before, too. Okay. And do we have a sense of what was driving that uh, period a couple of years ago when they were, you know, emerging from deep within the rainforest and uh, interacting not always pleasantly with um, neighboring peoples? I think it's generally assumed that that's coming from pressure from uh, timber extractors and uh, various other people because they're in places like the Manu National Park, as well as the so-called territorial reserve, uh, where there's theoretically some protection uh but uh they do come out and why the government the ministry of culture has a not a clear position on them uh there have been some rumors that they want to do a controlled contact which would be a disaster because they don't have the capability of of doing anything right so it would be uh, probably genocide if they did it uh but a lot of people are opposing that uh, and it hasn't happened yet. And some people in the Ministry of Culture even are arguing against it and saying that they want to let them decide their own fate and mm-hmm. come out if they want to, but they're not going to pressure them to do so. So there's a mixed message coming from the Ministry of Culture itself. Mm-hmm. Well, you used the G word, genocide. We should maybe talk a little bit more about that because certainly the uh... The COVID nineteen crisis uh, shows the uh, what what the the odds for these people may be in a very very stark light if they are forced to come into contact with the outside world on terms not of their own choosing. That's correct, but not just COVID nineteen. I mean, the whole range of uh, respiratory diseases uh, that would be potentially fatal to them, as well as uh, most of the, um, the malaria and other things. Well. They pretty much lived with that, but um, yeah, there are, there are plenty of uh, diseases that they probably don't have defenses to for that would potentially decimate their populations, as has happened when other isolated peoples have come into permanent contact. Usually, the the decimation of the population rate is over fifty percent. Wow, <clears throat> and there are some peoples who you know small isolated peoples who pretty much completely disappeared when that's true there have been a number of isolated peoples who have completely disappeared starting what in the 70s oh it goes back even farther than that going back to the rubber boom right in the end of the 19th century beginning in the 20th 
but then accelerating in the 70s with the, with the oil boom. Well, with the oil boom and increased logging yes. in the 70s yeah. and 80s, mm -hmm. and that continues. Yeah. And there have also been, you know, uh, both in Peru and in Brazil, there have been instances of just outright massacres of isolated peoples, it appears. In, in by, 1963, uh, the government with U.S. bombs and planes attacked the Matzés people who were in isolation at the time in, to, to support the claims of loggers who wanted the wood in that area. Indeed. Uh, in, yeah, that was 1963 under the first Belaunde government. And there have been similar situations, not quite as publicly egregious, but uh, with oil companies and so on. But most of the governments have not been very supportive of the indigenous peoples. They've always. Right, this is an episode I'm not familiar with. We should clarify: this is the the Matzes people are up in Loreto region. That's correct on is, the Brazilian uh, border, near and, the Brazilian border. They now border, have to the uh, north of Madre de Dios by a few hundred miles. Well, maybe even a thousand miles, but yeah. yes, mm -hmm. it's uh, the extreme and other also, end of the country, except in, in it's extreme, east. In extremely remote territory. You're saying that they're, but but they actually have a titled reserve, which has been. They have in recent years. It's the only native community in the country that has uh, been titled as an entire territory, uh, including 15 different local communities and not a single local community, which is the policy that's been assumed in the rest of the country. The reason for that was that there was a more open-minded and intelligent uh, direct, regional director of agriculture in Loreto at the time who went along with it. Also, curiously, the Summer Institute of Linguistics encouraged that when they were still there. Oh, in indeed, Oregon. really? Yeah. Huh. I was surprised at that. I didn't expect them to do anything like or that. This was what period? What, what decade are we 1980. talking about? 1980. Uh, to help them organize and claim that there were a single community and not 15 different ones. Uh, okay, so in contrast, for instance, to the... Uh, Amara Kayeri Communal Reserve, which I wrote about uh, 11 years ago in Madre de Dios, where there's small indigenous communities kind of ringing it, which are which are titled to the indigenous peoples. But the actual the heart of the of the reserve, the forest uh, that which covers the big majority of the of the reserve is actually controlled by the central government. So that's, that's right. uh, not the case with with the Matzes Reserve. They actually own the entire thing. That's right. The, the entire thing is the entire territory is titled to them. Except that, they, except that the land classified as forestry use is in uh, use uh, usufruct concession, not in property. Uh, I don't have a problem with that, frankly, because uh, as long as they have control over it, that's all that's necessary. Except huh. that there's the threat that the Forest Service may uh, cause them some, and they impose fines on them for not complying with the laws. Okay, but these are these are lands within the reserve or or adjacent to it. Within which reserve? The Matzes Reserve. Matzes, it's not a reserve; it's a titled community. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so the whole thing is their community, right? One yes, single yes. community. Yes. Actually, yes. there's another Matzes community separate. Uh, with some colonization areas in between, but it's much smaller. In, well, actually, it's not that small, but uh, the main one is the, the large one, which is now a total of around 600,000 hectares. 
-hmm. adjacent to the south to the Sierra del Divisor National Park and, uh, and to the north with a colonization area called Angamos. Okay, so the Matzes Reserve is seen as being one of the real success stories, not, not reserve, forgive me, the Matzes title territory yeah. is seen as being one of the, the real success stories of uh, uh, you know, indigenous land protection in Peru. But you're Absolutely. saying that uh, what maybe what 18 years before their land was titled to them back in 1963? Uh, Tell me about that. this episode again. Their land actually came under aerial bombardment. That's correct by the Belo Onda government with the Peruvian Air Force using U.S. provided planes and bombs. Uh huh. And this was uh, on behalf of what interests? Timber interests. Uh huh. And, and in, respond, in response to what? Had they, uh, you know, like taken The timber people to contributed to Belonda's uh, election campaign, and he was trying to pay them back. Yes. But, but were the Mott says, like, you know, act actively resisting the encroachment yes, upon their some territory? Yes, were killed. A significant number of them were killed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was a massacre. Where can one read about this episode? Well, it was in the papers in those days, and I believe it's reported in some uh, anthropology articles here and there. Uh, ah. I'm not exactly certain. Uh, we, there's a new book just out in which I contributed an article, and someone may have mentioned that in one of the articles. I don't remember very clearly. What book is that? It's called, uh, in English, it's called Toward uh, the Conquest of Self-Determination in, in Commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Barbados Declaration. It's published by IWGIA, the International Work Group for Indigenous Affairs. Is it in English? Is it in translation? It's in both English and Spanish. And the what English was the Barbados language. Declaration? The Barbados Declaration was uh, uh, promoted by the World Council of Churches, and it was a group of anthropologists, I believe 15 in total, from most of the countries of the region, um, who met and and, and came up with proposals for the liberation of Amazon indigenous, well, not just Amazon, indigenous peoples in all of the Latin American countries, including Mexico and Central America and mm -hmm. most of the South American countries. Uh, and that was- When, what year was this? 1971. It was, uh, wow. so this is the 50th anniversary of it. Uh -huh. And that's why the book came out and I contributed an article to it. Oh, great. And it's on my, it's, today I posted it on my academia.edu page, so you can find it there. The oh, whole book and, and, and also my contribution to it. Oh, great. What are, some, what are the search terms so people can find it? Uh, well, you can find it on Google with uh, the title of the book, which is Toward, um, toward Self-Determination. Toward the Conquest of Self-Determination. Toward the Conquest of Self-Determination. Yes. Published by the International Working Group on Indigenous Affairs. The editor is Alberto Chirif. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it's, it was published a few months ago, also 19, in 2021, I think January or February, uh, in Spanish. And now this month, the English language version of it came out. Oh, well, I'll definitely have to get a copy. So we well, get it online for free, obviously. Right, but I need I want to actually get a paper copy if you'll forgive me. <clears throat> well, if I get a paper cup, if I get the copies I'm supposed to, I'll probably share one with you. Well, that'd be most, most appreciated. Thank you. 
But why don't we talk a bit more about your own book, Madre de Dios, Refugio de Pueblos Originarios, okay. uh, of which you're, you're one of three co-editors and several contributors. Yes, there are 13 authors and 10 indigenous leaders interviewed uh, in, in, the, in the book. Um, of the various peoples of Madre de Dios, of which there are many, actually. There, well, seven are addressed in that uh, book. Uh, technically, there are really 10 peoples in Madre Dios because there's some, but not 10 communities that are affiliated with them because they're small groups of people. Like I think there are three surviving Inupatis and they're not in communities. They're along the Las Piedras rivers uh, li living with uh, mestizo or Andean people of Andean origin. And when they die, the, the, the culture and the language disappeared totally. That's very uh, sad. What happened to the rest of the Inyapari? Well, they haven't been. They were mostly wiped out by the rubber boom. The uh, rubber t people from Bolivia, uh, in uh, who uh, were working for Nicolas Suarez, in the in the very end of the 19th century, before the Peruvians came into the area, and the Peruvians did similar things, of course, particularly Fitzgerald massacred a lot of people and so forth and enslaved but, a lot of the indigenous and, and a lot, well a lot of a lot of the rubber tappers did enslave people but and brought people who were enslaved into the area uh, but they didn't really succeed in enslaving the local peoples because they fled in you know, or <coughs> or died <laughs> they wouldn't work for for the rubber people and they kind of disappeared into the headwaters where, where they were not as accessible. But I addressed that in my two contributions. One is a long article on the prehistory in which I proposed some hypotheses on how people populated the region and uh, <coughs> under what kinds of pressures and, and uh, external conditions. Uh, the other one, the second one is was originally written for as a what's called a peritaje, a contribution in support of the uh, injunction that uh, Fenamad presented to the to the courts, and which has never been resolved. It's now in the constitutional tribunal, and that that uh, document was presented to the constitutional tribunal as well to determine whether it was. Uh, the against Hunt Oil, uh, arguing that the contract was not valid because it infringed on uh, indigenous rights and a whole range uh -huh, of uh -huh. documents. Uh, so that was what that was written for, and essentially documents historically where Rakbut people were cited in different times, mostly in the 19th century and, and right, later. Harakbut, one of the principal peoples of Madre de Dios. That's correct. Yeah, They're yeah. the people that I, that I did that for uh, in support of, of the Fenamad claim against uh, Hunt Oil. And how was that finally resolved or was it's it? not finally resolved. Right. It's still waiting sentence in the Constitutional Tribunal. Although the Constitutional Tribunal is like the U.S. Supreme Court. It determines the constitutionality of acts and laws. Uh, but uh, Hunt Oil is now gone. Right. And so it's pretty much moot, except yeah. that it will establish a precedent. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. And when, when are they expected to rule? 
uh, probably never. <laughs> Can't stop uh, they, that, right. they, they tend to just ignore those things, especially when it's moot or when it's not uh, affecting immediate uh, corporate interests. Yes, 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 yes. And the Harakmud are actually of the uh, the Arawak linguistic family, correct? No, they are not. They're that not. was a mistake made many years ago, and the Dominican missionaries have promoted that 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 uh, argument. But they are an independent language group, uh, which has never had a conclusively uh, uh, established a relationship with any other language family. A uh, and a, a Dutch linguist claims they're related to Kanamari uh, and various other peoples in the north of Amazonas in Brazil. Um, I have a, a hypothesis that they came from originally from the upper Madeira River in Brazil, and the Arakbut came to Madre Dios, and if they're related, the Kanamari and the others went to the farther north. Uh, about 6,000 years ago, uh, but or more, 7,000 years ago, because we have documentation of, of archaeological remains from that period mm. as two peoples moved into that part of the upper Madeira, which would be the reason why those people were expelled from there or left on their own volition in any case. Uh, and my projection is that the Arakbut are the original peoples, indigenous peoples in Madre Rios, and the others came later in different waves. But that's a complex argument, and it's uh, still pretty much hypothetical. Or what about it, the Machaganga, which would be the other? The Machaganga are an Arawakan group that came yeah. later, and probably the first wave of Arawakans to come into the area. The Yini, or uh, vulgarly called Piro, are uh, the later wave of Arawakans. Mm -hmm. And that's discussed in the first article. Uh, and the others, the Aseja and various uh, Panoan peoples, uh, came in also in different waves. Uh, and the Arawakan peoples really got around. They actually extended all the way up to the Caribbean. Yes, they did. Yeah. And, and they, were, they had the largest territorial extension of presences uh, at the time of, of uh, the contact with the New World, the Colombian uh, 1492. Where is their their origin point from which they dispersed, believed to have been? That's still a, um, a matter of discussion, but it's probably somewhere in the central Amazon. Right. But they moved around quite a bit. And probably not entire populations, but elites from those populations who were long-distance traders. So uh, is uh, your book going to be published into English? Going to be translated into English? There's no project for that yet. I would hope okay. that, it, that it could be. But in any case, I'm planning to publish parts of it or thing or other books that include information similar to that or that deals with some of the same issues in English as well as in Spanish. I try to publish things first in Spanish and then translate them myself into English. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I feel that's an obligation I have to Peru as, since I'm living here and so forth. Yes. And you've been in Peru for quite some time now, like 30 years or something? More than that, yes. Uh, permanently, it's in uh, 40 years. And from well, I first arrived in this country in 1965. So that's, wow. that's 56 years. Yes, it certainly is. My goodness. But um, I'm going to be here for a while longer, it looks like. 
So what are you, what's, uh, who exactly is this book intended for? What, what are you hoping that it's going to accomplish? Um, correcting a lot of misinformation about indigenous peoples. Uh, hopefully having some influence on policymakers, decision makers uh, in governments. Um, some of it, uh, we're distributing the book free among the communities themselves. So that Fenamad has a number of copies and the other or indigenous organizations, a lot of NGOs, um, universities and so forth are getting free copies. That's what it's for. It's not commercially distributed. It's all right. I would imagine not. No <clears throat> donations from USAID. Right. And what? How did you? Uh, what was the, the connection to USAID? Well, it's a long story, uh, but originally, the book was uh, USAID asked us, the editors, to produce the book. Uh, we're all friends and have been for many years. We've right. all been working in, in Mother Dios over uh, 30, 40 years or more. Uh, and uh, so USAID asked us to, to do the book in the framework of a project called ICAA ICA 2, which was led by the University of Florida. Or run that uh, bias again. What what does that mean or stand for? Uh, I'm not quite sure what it means. It's uh, inter it, it has to do with the conservation of the Amazon, and it's ICAA. Uh, it was a USAID project, which is always referred to by the initials. I don't remember the name. Okay. Uh, in any case, that project, which was in supposed to have been in Peru, Bolivia, and Brazil, uh, Bolivia opted out early and so did brazil so it was most of it well actually bolivia opted out early and they did some things in brazil and more in peru until the whole thing was canceled by usaid because of some disputes over financial management by the university of florida <laughs> for example they uh, they bought vehicles off the shelf and distributed them uh, to the regional government uh, which was not allowed under USAID uh, contract conditions. And so, uh, and a whole range of other uh, improper um, uh, donations or which were obviously for political influence and so forth. Uh, and so USAID called them on the carpet for that and couldn't reach an agreement, so they canceled the project. Meanwhile, the project had committed to funding the publication of the book, and we got the book, most of it organized and written uh, in, 19, in 2015. It, we were working on it 2014, 2015, uh, but then it was suspended and we didn't, there was no money to publish it. And so we went through some hoops to try to get a new project set up with some NGOs and so forth. USAID rejected that. And then USAID said they, there was no way it could be published. It was our problem. Uh, and, oh. and some people have been paid for their work, mostly the authors, not the editors. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, then a new leadership came into USAID, uh, this regional office of USAID, which covers the Amazon Basin countries. Now that was when? And that was about 2019. Uh, so and already so, Trump era. 
Yeah. And so they agreed to pump, you know, Trump era didn't seem to affect us aid very much. Um, and uh, the Congress went along with those kind with the budgets and so forth. Well, I think that was, you know, Trump was so, uh, I think, you know, inept and, uh, and, and such not a details guy to say the least that I think a lot of, uh, you know, the uh, lower levels of the bureaucracy, the so-called quote unquote deep state could pretty yeah. much keep functioning autonomously without being, uh, you know, bothered by all the wackiness going on up at the top. That's correct. And, and the, some of the USAID people were pretty conscientious. And uh, the woman who was in charge of this regional office liked the idea of the book and read through some of the chapters and so forth and said USAID should publish it on its own, not through not in the framework of a project. Mm -hmm. So they eventually contracted uh, a publishing house in Lima, uh, which was competed and there we're in charge with the distribution and whole lots of other things. But I did a lot of the distribution myself in coordination with the publisher. Uh, I had a pretty good relationship with them and they did good work. And so the, the artwork of the book and so forth is really nice. Yes, it um, is. It's quite spectacular. In fact, all these um, amazing maps and charts and color photos of, um, of the region. Yeah, sure. It's a very exactly. visually impressive book, without a doubt. And, and, and as, I, as I usually say, it, it, it's un libro pesado. It's a heavy book. That too. Like, yes, indeed. It weigh, weighs almost three kilos. No? Yes, indeed. It's <laughs> heavy both uh, metaphorically and literally, I would say. <clears throat> okay. Anyway, uh, it finally came out. And now the, the, the struggle is to get it distributed properly because COVID-19 uh, blocked access to a lot of people where we wanted it delivered. Right. Indeed. Yes. So uh, I note that one of the uh, the dedication actually is to a uh, one of the indigenous leaders in Madre de Dios who, who died of COVID. Yes. In July of last year. Can you tell us a bit about him? His name was Jose Tijen. He was an Arasayri, which is uh, a subgroup of the Arakbut. Uh, he was a leader in the organization of his community in land rights and one of the founders of Fenamad 40 years ago. Wow. Uh, so um, uh, he was a person who's with, with whom I had a strong relationship and great mutual respect. Uh, he'd been uh, in some health problems, but then he was recovering nicely and was, uh, looked like he was going to be active again. Uh, until the COVID situation came along and, and uh, did him in, essentially. Uh, his daughter is now the director in Madre Dios of the Ministry of Culture, and she was promoting a lot of things that we, we've been working fairly closely with her. Uh, but uh, Jose Tijé uh, was a visionary, the indigenous leader, and so his loss was uh, the end of an era for a lot of people, you know, for those people in particular, the Arasairi. And uh, so we dedicated, dedicated the book to him, his memory, as a leader who had been instrumental in getting his people and Fenamad altogether organized. And he'd been in the leadership of Fenamad in several different uh, periods. Mm -hmm. So how much of a toll has COVID been taking in the indigenous communities in Peru and in the country generally, but particularly the indigenous communities. 
in other parts of the country, a fairly heavy toll. In, uh, in indigenous peoples, in Madre Dios, we, we know of six deaths that can be directly attributed to COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably hundreds of people have had it and recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, the indigenous people who've become ill, including some fairly elder uh, people in their 80s, have had it and recovered nicely. Uh, so uh, there, it appears to me, at least, uh, that the resistance to the diseases of the early contacts in the 50s and so forth have helped these people survive this kind of thing. So um, that's uh, interesting. The, the indigenous, the FEMA is not making visits to communities except in urgent situations where there's mm. a crisis of a conflict with a timber concession or something. Uh, I, I went with them to one community in February in that un, under those circumstances, mm-hmm. but they're avoiding uh, travel uh, along the river into the communities, and they're holding their meetings now on Zoom, right? Uh, which means that uh, most of the leadership has to go to a place where there is internet connectivity, and that's not everywhere. Right, I would but imagine it's being not. improved by regional government investment in order to implement the school system, which has to be done remotely. Well, the capital, uh, uh, Puerto Maldonado, of course, has internet. Does, does much of the rest of the region got internet? Uh, most of the relatively populated areas have internet, although not always very good, strong signals. Right. Um, in my place in Puerto Maldonado, there's a fairly good internet connection. Much better than some of the cities in Peru, like Iquitos and Pucallpa. Really? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Iquitos is the worst of all. All right, which is and the I, capital of Loreto region of Loreto. up in the north. Yeah. Correct. <clears throat> and the biggest city in the uh, Peruvian Amazon, I believe. That is correct, also. Yeah. But, but so the what, second have city you got a sense of what the COVID situation is like uh, in Loreto and Yucalali and Amazonas? It's abating. A lot of people have died. A lot of people have been ill and have recovered. And, uh, and but it, there's still uh, there's still deaths every day, and people confined to hospitals and ICU units. Uh, and uh, but the numbers are declining, at least well, throughout the Amazon basin and uh, the rest of the country as well. In in uh, Jan- in February and March. There was an increase in cases throughout Peru, including the Amazon Basin regions. Uh, but that has been declining in uh, late April and May. Are due to what? Just due to people taking precautions? No. Uh, well, they're now vaccinating some people. Uh, I think it's that they've got their act together. A little, the Ministry of Health has got its act together a little better in terms of uh, making having oxygen available in ICU mm-hmm. units and and saving people's lives. All right, so they actually are beginning to roll out the vaccine in Peru. They are, but it's only people over sixty five. And the end of this month, it'll go down to sixty, and then progressively the age will drop. And that itself is fairly recent because the last I heard that it was still not available. It well, right now they have AstraZeneca. Uh, available for people over 65 in most of the country. And that's been the case for what? A matter of weeks? A matter of about a month. About a month. Mm -hmm. A little over a month. Mm -hmm. 
I was in the U.S. with my family in Tucson, Arizona, and we all got uh, vaccinated both shots right, before right. we came back to Peru. Yeah. But uh, and that was because it was not available at that time in Peru. But not well, only that, but I had some other things to do in Tucson. Like yes, another, yes. <clears throat> yeah. Well, uh, anyway. you know, your book has really got, uh, you know, quite the historical scope, you know, going back to the uh, the deprecations of the rubber boom. Sure. Uh, more than a century ago now. <clears throat> yes. And then, uh, you know, through the, uh, the, 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 the oil industry starting to move in over the past generation or two. And uh, now it seems like the biggest threat is from these uh, ostensibly illegal but tolerated resource extraction uh, enterprises. And the drug traffickers, yes. And the drug traffickers with whom they are violent. There, there are many assassinations now because of the violence from the drug traffickers. In, in Madre de Dios, yeah? No, not only in Madre de Dios, there was a... There was this, what I consider a Keiko Fujimori psychosocial thing. I can't prove that, obviously. Uh, in, uh, in the Varayam, the area where the remains of Sendero are. and uh, Yes, I wanted to talk about that, indeed. Uh, 18 people were killed uh, yesterday, or the, maybe it was the day before, but very recently. Yes. And uh, that's been the biggest uh attack on human lives by so-called terrorists in recent years and my interpretation and that of Jaime Antisana who's a specialist in drug in drug traffickers and so forth uh is that this is a fujimori psycho social uh trick a false um, flag operation as they say yes yeah. well, as soon as i read about it you know it <laughs> It seemed uh, pretty clear that people would be speculating to that effect because it's just kind of natural. It just played into her hands. So, uh, so since the press has praised Fujimori for controlling Sendero, which is not true, by the way, because it was the Rondas Campesinas that controlled the Sendero, not anything the government did. Uh, in fact, the military uh, interventions made things worse for the most part. And uh, Fujimori actually opposed the capture of Abimael Guzman, and that was done by uh, select police. Are you talking uh, about the old man Fujimori now, Alberto the, Fujimori? The old man Fujimori, yes, who's, now, who's in prison yeah. uh, for 25 years. Right. And one of the things that Keiko wants to do is pardon him, obviously. Of course, of course. Which right, so would what, violate he, all sorts of international agreements. Yes, so. he's in prison not only for corruption, but for human rights abuses as well. Exactly. <clears throat> and it's principally the human rights abuses that are keeping him in prison. Uh, oh, but you, those, you're saying that he opposed the operation that resulted in the, uh, in yes, the capture of Chairman Gonzalo? Because of his uh, conflict with the police unit that was doing that. Uh -huh. A political conflict. Indeed. Uh, but Ketin Vidal, who was the head of the, that particular police unit, uh, vi uh, uh, violated orders not to capture uh, Abimael Guzman and actually captured him. And then Fujimori claimed cre credit well, for it. Well, of course, claimed credit for it after the fact. Right, of course. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Anyway, so uh, the Sendero movement, for the most part, now survives only in this one little pocket of rainforest called the Vrayem. 
which Correct. is the valley of the Aparimac and the and Montaro uh, Rivers. Montaro Rivers, yes, exactly. Uh, which is kind of to the uh, northwest of Madre de Dios. That's that's right. Yeah. And uh, they've kind of been in abeyance even there, but recently they seemingly, two days ago, reemerged to attack some some peasant settlements in the rainforest, not even the security forces, but just campesino settlements in the rainforest and killed 18 people, including women and children. That's right. Yeah. And so why would they do that? It's so close to the elections. That That's the big question that no one really has the answer to. Well, apparently, according to the media accounts, they left behind leaflets urging abstention in the elections. So maybe they carried it out as like a warning of, you know, if you vote, this is what, what's going to happen to you. Uh, that's a possibility. Who knows? Right. Uh, I, don't th- I think it's all speculation at this point. Yes. They're, they're not... Uh, arguing they're not making a case for for um for any particular position anyway let's uh i'm sorry who is not making a case for any particular position well beyond the leaflets to my knowledge there's been no public statement of uh oh you mean the sendero themselves the gorillas themselves not making any any uh statement yes yes, correct yeah and and i don't think the police know much yet uh, or the military. So. Well, hopefully we're not going to be saying any more of this kind of thing. Not what Peru needs, to say the least. Exactly. <clears throat> but uh, but I'm convinced that it 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 occurred because it just, I mean, I, I don't see any reason why it would happen except to affect the elections. And probably in favor of Keiko because it will raise the specter of terrorism and people would think Yes, yes, yes. Well, I mean, I haven't actually heard the conspiracy theory until just now, but it was obvious as soon as I saw the news that people were going to be um, floating this because it's just kind of obvious. Sure. Anyway, it's going to be very interesting to watch what happens in Peru over the next few weeks. That's for sure. On January 6th, we'll have the election. We'll see what happens. I I certainly hope that it is. I'm sorry, sorry, June 6th. Yeah. And I certainly hope that. Pedro Castillo wins and by a substantial margin. So that's not close and not disputed because yes, there's likely exactly. to be violence otherwise. Yes. Which is why precisely the logic by which I held my nose and, and voted for uh, Joe Biden up here in Gringolandia, because I wanted him well, to have the biggest absolute majority just in case there was any, uh, you know, monkey business. As there has <laughs> been and continues to be. Yes, yeah. exactly. Correct. Exactly. So no, uh, I, I did the same thing. <laughs> But anyway, he's proven to be better than I expected him to be, but we'll see. Well, the process of de-Trumpification, as it were, has actually been advancing faster than I had hoped. So um, not that I had any great um, expectations, mind you, but uh, generally I'm uh, pleasantly surprised. Maybe that's only because I started with such a, uh, you know, low expectations, but I've generally been pleasantly surprised at the pace of de-Trumpification. But um, Except uh, there's a lot that needs to be undone still. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just read uh, today that, you know, he's finally granted temporary protected status for uh, for Haitians in the United States, which was something that Trump undid that we were waiting for uh, for Biden to get back on track again. And he kind of dragged his heels about it, but he finally just did it today. So that's belated progress, but progress nonetheless. So I guess, you know, is your fear that... um, 
particularly where uh, Madre de Dios is concerned that, um, you know, if, ojalá que no, Keiko gets in, that, you know, it's just kind of like going to unleash the floodgates in terms of the, uh, you know, these gray market um, development interests and, and resource exploitation interests, you know, just entering into the region in mass, the illegal timber operations and mining operations and so on. And organized crime, which is uh, laundering its uh, resources through those activities. Right, exactly. That's what I mean by gray market. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of tolerated, but officially illegal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's the situation, and we'll see what happens on January 6th. Frankly, June, I'm June 6th. Sorry, June 6th. <laughs> I'm, I'm frankly hoping that Castillo will win. Not because I particularly like him, because I'm he's too conservative for my purposes. But anyway, um, uh, the alternative would be disastrous. Yes. Well, I mean, Castillo is, uh, you know, he's quote unquote socially conservative, as they say up here in the States. But he's not the same kind of political animal as, uh, you know, um, uh, Pedro Pablo Kaczynski. Uh, who uh, defeated um, narrowly defeated Keiko Fujimori last time around? Only because like, only uh, because know, people voted only because people voted against Keiko. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he was yeah. more of the uh, you know Joe B Peruvian Joe Biden equivalent, kind of you know a a lukewarm. Not centrist. even more more right wing than that. Yes, more right wing than that. And he himself has since been forced to step down under cloud of corruption He's still under uh house uh, home arrest oh is he really yeah mm -hmm. so uh, uh preventive detention oh is he really he's under uh house arrest preventive he's detention? under house arrest because they well he have, hasn't been brought to trial yet for a whole right on various corruption charges yes yeah. but nonetheless i mean it was kind of like the, the left i think in peru kind of uh when he was running what six years ago now they kind of adopted right. a hold your nose and vote for him position because, you know, the alternative was Keiko. That's right. That was yeah. five years ago, the last election. Right. Whereas um, uh, Pedro Castillo, you know, at least he's more of a uh, he's more of a populist. And he's really uh, he seems to be appealing to the provincial areas of the country on, on a correct. populist basis much more than uh, Kaczynski had. Yes, that's yeah. true. Yeah, so they're not at all the same. No, kind of he's talking animal. about changing the constitution, eliminating all the privatization uh, requirements, and uh, a, whole, a number of other things, which is good. He also made some uh, rather stupid remarks about eliminating the ombudsman's office and the constitutional tribunal, which are important guarantees for the people against the abuses of the government. Right, by the ombudsman's office, you mean the Defensoria del Pueblo? Exactly. Now, why yeah. would that's that's the office which oversees uh, complaints of human rights abuses? Why would he want to eliminate that? Well, uh, they've made some unfortunate uh, decisions, uh, adversely affecting or sort of allowing some of the abuses to go on. So that, as well as, but the main problem is not them. For, I still see the Defense Real Pueblo or the Ombudsman's Office as a major. Uh, force to control the abuses of the government still. Yes. And I think it always has been. It's just that there have been some unfortunate uh, positions taken by some people who are no longer in power. Uh, and that was established about, after the Fujimori era, right? That's correct. Yeah. 
kind and of also the constitutional the tribunal, which was which was established <laughs> under the current constitution, the Fujimori constitution. Uh, there have been some pretty right wing positions taken by the judges in that the in favor of corporate interests and not people. Uh, so for me, the the point is. Uh, we need new people in the constitutional tribunal, but not uh, abolishing it as such. Uh, but but because of those mistakes, court. because of those bad decisions, Pedro Castillo is well. Let's get rid of him. You know, yes, 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 yes. Dumb yes, thing yes. to say. Yes, yes, yes. Just this kind of crude and sweeping populism. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, is your book available to people? Uh, you know, real uh, Peruvianists. Fanatics who want to uh, get in really, really deep into Madre de Dios, is it available through Amazon or whatnot? It's not available commercially, not through Amazon, unless somebody sells them their private copy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is available online, I imagine. It is available online in a number of places. It's available on my Academia.edu page. It's available, uh, the whole book is, not just uh, my, my contributions to it. It's available um, on the Salsa, which South American uh, Society for the Anthropology of Lowland South America website. It's available on USAID website and two or three other places. I can't remember which. Uh, so it's, if, if you can Google it, it'll come up. Yeah. And uh, what you want to Google is Madre de Dios, Refugio de Pueblos Originarios. That'll bring it up in three or four or five or six different places. And your co-editors are uh, Maria Chavarria and Klaus Ruben Hurler. Well, Klaus is an anthropologist. uh, Coca Chavarria is a linguist. But we've we've been friends for many years. And uh, uh, USAID asked us to do the book, so we did. Great. So, uh, Thomas Moore, any, uh, you know, closing words for, uh, you know, Peru watchers up here in Los Estados Unidos about what, a, uh, what the stakes are going to be in the country in the coming weeks? Just be attentive to the elections and hope that the worst doesn't come to, uh, to occur. Yes, indeed. Uh, seems to be a watchword in many countries around the world right now, including our own, the United States up here. What's the... Uh, what's the um, what are they saying in the U.S. about the elections in Peru? Well, very little, very little. <laughs> and there was something on CNN the other day, I believe. No, has there? Well, I'll, I'll try to Google it, but uh, there's been uh, very little English language coverage that I've noticed. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> and my fear is—I hope that I'm wrong—but my fear is that uh, you know, if things get really heavy there and things polarize very quickly, then. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people playing catch up here in the English language media up here in up here in Gringolandia. And, and with uh, unfortunate positions, I'm afraid. Yeah. That goes with the that. territory. Yes. Well, the other thing is the violence that's likely to happen occur if the election is close. Right. Exactly. Which is what we're worried about here back in January and what we're going to have to be concerned with in Peru in June, which is why I assume you keep confusing June and January. <laughs> maybe that's comments. the subtle reason behind it i don't know <laughs> anyway, i hadn't thought of that but you're you're right i think that's probably the my, that's my freudian reason of my, my freudian reading and it's probably a correct freudian reading i hadn't thought of it that way but makes sense 
All right, Thomas Moore, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Well, thank and, you. Uh, it's been a pleasure. We're definitely going to continue to watch uh, the situation in Peru here on the Counter Vortex. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex interviewing Thomas Moore in Lima, Peru. As always, you can check out our work online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time.